with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. It's the Thursday edition, and on today's program, we have a double shot of front burner from CBC News. As usual, we will have the uh, yesterday morning's edition. Uh, that's coming up later in the hour, but we're going to start with Tuesday morning's edition of front burner from CBC News. So this is the sound of thousands of people who took to the streets of Sao Paulo to protest against President Jair Bolsonaro's pandemic response. It wasn't just in Sao Paulo. Dozens of states across the country took part. This all comes as Brazil surpassed half a million COVID deaths, the world's highest toll after the United States. Robert Mugga has been studying all of this. He's the director of the Igarape Institute in Rio, and he divides his time between there and Canada. Today, we talk about the devastating toll the COVID has taken in Brazil and what it might take for it to come out of this crisis. Hi, Robert. Thank you so much for making the time today. It's a pleasure. Brazil passed this very grim milestone this weekend, over 500,000 deaths. And it's been really grim there for a long time. But there seems to be this incredibly palpable anger now. And could you tell me a little bit more about these protests that, that we've been seeing? What we're seeing across Brazil are dozens, if not even hundreds, of protests uh, against Bolsonaro, but also in favor of Bolsonaro uh, that are really coming to a head so from Brazil's largest cities like Sao Paulo to its many of its smaller towns in the interior in the north, uh, we're seeing people coming out onto the streets in spite of COVID, in spite of a third wave, uh, to really make their voices heard. And we're seeing this also online as well, uh, with enormous frustrations and anger uh, being expressed on mainstream social media. Uh, so we're really seeing uh, 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 the polarization and divisiveness in Brazil that's been characterized in the last 20 months really coming to a head. Right. And you mentioned that there are, are, are protests uh, like pro-Bolsonaro protests as well. And can you tell me a little bit about those? These are often white men, uh, often evangelicals, um, people from the middle class, the lower class, but also the elite, uh, wrapped in the Brazilian colors of nationalism and patriotism, uh, who are often out there on motorcycles or <laughs> walking along the main uh, esplanades of the, of the major cities. These are people who've been, who've been egged on and incentivized by Jair Bolsonaro from the very beginning of crisis, in some cases to object to lockdown, for example, and restrictions or public health measures. Uh, so they're often unmasked um, and very, very vocal uh, and aggressive with uh, their opposition. Right. And you mentioned motorcycle. I've seen images of these. So it's just like hundreds of guys in motorcycles out on the street. You know, I don't want this to sound like too much of an obvious question, but the anti-Bolsonaro protests, can you just tell me like what exactly the, the people are so angry about, so frustrated about when it comes to Bolsonaro's handling of the COVID-19 crisis? I mean, for more than 20 months, Bolsonaro has denied that this is a serious threat, despite over 500,000 dead. Stop this fussing and whining. How long will you keep crying? 
we have to face the problems. Um, so, you know, I think people on the on, superficially, at least, are, are deeply frustrated with the fact that this federal government has not only denied or underplayed, but often tried to stymie efforts to adopt more aggressive, preventive health measures to try to stay this crisis. But it's not just the health crisis. It's also the economy. Uh, it's also the corruption that people are now seeing, which is mounting again after uh, this president rode into power, suggesting that he might be able to crack down on this. Mayor of Rio de Janeiro, Marcelo Crivella, was arrested at his home and held in custody as part of a corruption investigation. The 63-year-old and ally of President Jair Bolsonaro claimed to be a victim of political persecution. Uh, it's also police violence. Uh, so what we're seeing is a constellation of frustrations that are coming together uh, and boiling over. And there's just anger at Bolsonaro, the man who just shows such disdain for human life. Um, and I think people are really, they've had enough. It's our duty to fight for democracy, this protester says. This government is no use to us. It doesn't serve the people. And its political project is to kill us. I understand there's, too, an investigation by a Brazilian Senate committee into Bolsonaro's pandemic response. And, and what have we seen from that so far? The central claim is that Bolsonaro had refused multiple um, efforts and treaties by pharmaceutical companies to provide Brazil with uh, vaccines. In fact, there are emails suggest that, you know, that where, where efforts to try to solicit or provide vaccines were rejected by the federal government. Um, and so he's being accused, essentially, of criminal negligence in this case uh, and of not you know, successfully having procured vaccines, uh, which is, I think, one of the big reasons why we're seeing such a catastrophe unfolding right now in Brazil. And can you just paint that picture for, for me, what kind of damage that we're talking about here? Of course, with, with lives lost, half a million people, uh, but the economy as well. It's a very grim historically grim situation in Brazil right now, a country that was already struggling uh, before COVID-19, having just emerged from a multi-year recession. What we see superficially, at least right now on the ground, is, is inflation is, is rising. Uh, productivity has been reduced as a result of just the sheer volume of people who've been infected. You, you, you compound this with the worst drought that Brazil's seen in over 90 years. So if you look at Brazil right now, uh, in, in the wake of COVID, what we're talking about is a lost decade, potentially, um, whereby we see 8 billion people who've lost their jobs, unemployment at almost 15%, the highest we've seen in, in almost a decade. You, you see extremely difficult situation for, for the majority of the population who are working in the informal economy. More than 50% of Brazilians uh, don't have a job in the formal economy, and you know, so therefore don't have the kind of social safety nets that you or I or others might have if you had a gainful employment. Um, and so, you know, this is my point, I suppose, is that in trying to avoid these economic costs and, and by refusing to allow for a nationwide effort or campaign to try to prevent the spread of COVID, Bolsonaro's actually made a bad situation much, much worse. And the response from the Brazilian authorities, from the federal government, has a very limited effect in terms of small amounts of subsidies uh, of about $50 in Canadian terms a month for over 70 million people, which had an important, you could say, smoothing effect but it didn't address any of these bigger challenges. And what we see now in Brazil for the first time in decades is a crisis of food insecurity. In January, the government suspended the emergency aid just as infections began to spiral out of control, forcing new lockdowns. The crisis affected private businesses, which were contributing to charity last year and can no longer afford to do so. With no help from the public sector and no jobs, people in the slums and poor neighborhoods are literally starving to death. 
one thing I, I think is probably worth mentioning here is is that you know, we're talking about all the deaths in this country. Thousands of young children have been dying of COVID as well. What really stands out, and, and I think what's what's extraordinarily distressing about this, is is the death of infants and, and under five year olds. And, and you know, epidemiologists have been scratching their heads trying to figure out just what is the scope and scale of of the mortality amongst the under five year olds. And some people say as many as two thousand children um, have have died in the last twenty months. And this many think this might be an underestimate because of the number of people who are dying of undiagnosed respiratory illnesses. Um, and this is really unusual, right? Because we, we, you know, one of the narratives of COVID-19 the last year or two has been that um, this didn't really impact children as, as much as, as adults. And we're seeing in Brazil, you know, as a result of the fact that just the sheer volume of patients has, has led to this really appalling situation of, of young children um, dying, you know, in their beds and unable to see their parents, you know, because parents aren't allowed into the hospital. So, you know, last words over tablets with infants. It's just you know, beyond the pale. It's incredibly tragic. And then, you know, even when you're talking about uh, uh, the estimates on, on that number, I would imagine even the 500,000 number, it, it could be even larger. talked about how Bolsonaro had basically thrown a wrench in, in, in overtures for vaccines, but my understanding is that there are vaccines that are still getting into the country. 11% of Brazilians are now fully vaccinated, uh, but just 29% have received their first dose. And so why is that happening? Just to be clear, Brazil, Brazil should have been a, a global leader in vaccines. It it's routinely deals with tropical diseases uh, ranging from yellow fever to, to Zika it has an institute that develops uh, vaccines together with the University of Oxford, uh, and it's been exporting its uh, medical know-how globally for, for decades. But I think the single largest reason why Brazil hasn't been able to attain the kind of vaccination rollout that it should have is because of the negligence and, uh, frankly, the outright disruption from Bolsonaro himself. I mean, this is a president who's, who's turned down suppliers, he's castigated the Chinese, he's actively prevent governors and mayors from taking uh, more aggressive action. So this federal negligence, uh, this uncoordinated state response, what it's done is it's led to a kind of patchwork of responses from different states. I mean, Brazil is a continent-sized country with over 26 states and one federal district capital. So you have some states like Sao Paulo uh, or Minas Gerais, which are big, powerful economic sort of champions um, and they tend to be a little more conservative and much more business-oriented, they're taking very aggressive measures, right? They've really tried to roll up vaccines. They've gone out and procured their own equipment and their own vaccines. Uh, but then you have other states like Rio de Janeiro, which everyone knows, uh, but also happens, by the way, to be the president's hometown, uh, which has taken a much more passive approach. I would also imagine, considering the politics, that even if there was suddenly some flood of vaccines, that there would probably be a tremendous amount of vaccine hesitancy or anti-vax sentiment, maybe among Bolsonaro supporters? I, I think for sure there there is some uh, level of hesitancy in Brazil. I mean, I, I clearly Bolsonaro uh, and his sons um, and their sort of diehard supporters have decided uh, that this is something they can weather out without vaccines or any form of treatment. 
Um, but it is important to stress that most Brazilians want to be vaccinated. I mean, this is a, a country that, for the most part, understands and has experience with vaccines, has a long history of dealing with infectious disease outbreaks and, and uh, you know, where there's a great deal of trust in, in public health officials. So I think that for the most part, uh, the majority, which, by the way, coincides uh, with Bolsonaro's popularity uh, uh, ratings. In other words, less than 25 percent of the population currently support him right now. I suspect the vast majority of the country would like to get a vaccine if they can get their hands on it. of Tuesday morning's front burner from CBC News. We'll have part two in a moment here on After 9. You're listening to 93.1 CFIS-FM. Featuring the latest songs from artists in Canada and from around the world. Hosted by DJs from coast to coast to coast. 30 minutes of Canada's newest music downloaded exclusively from the Earshot's digital distribution system. For more information about the show, check out earshot-distro.ca. Listen up, Canada. This is your show on your station. Canada's Earshot Daily. Earshot Daily, weekday nights at 1125 here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. A strong membership gives the BC Schizophrenia Society a louder voice on matters of importance to families who have been affected by schizophrenia, psychosis, and severe mental illness. For an annual individual membership of $15, you will have the opportunity to voice your opinions and vote at their annual general meeting on issues brought forward by the board of directors and vote for the following year's directors. To get your membership, click on Become a BCSS Member under Make a Difference at bcss.org. After one year off due to COVID, the Participation Community Better Challenge is back for 2021. Did you know everything gets better when you get active? Even communities. Participate in the challenge this June to get moving, connect with others, and help our community get crowned Canada's most active community. Learn more by visiting participation.com, then join in the Participation Community Better Challenge through June 30th. The Participation Community Better Challenge. Let's community better together. Forecast from Environment Canada. Cloudy today, winds from the west at 20 this afternoon, a high of 24 with a high UV index. Clearing tonight with a low of 12. For Friday, sunny, wind from the west at 20 in the afternoon, a high of 30 with a very high UV index. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And here is part two of Tuesday morning's front burner from CBC News. And so... Robert, moving forward here, what, what happens next? And I, I suppose the question I have is, is there a way out of this crisis that doesn't involve tossing Bolsonaro out of office uh, by hmm. some means? I fear there may not be an easy way out of this crisis. I mean, the federal elections, the national elections in Brazil are in October 2022. So more than a year from now. Um, and there is, as Harold Wilson, you know, former prime minister of the UK said, uh, you know, a week is a long time in politics. That's a long time. We, we have many months uh, to go before this election. And I, I fear that what we're going to be seeing in Brazil is a deepening of polarization and division, not some grand coalition of coming together. Um, and, and right now, Bolsonaro, in spite of his low popularity ratings, he's down, but he's by no means out. Um, uh, you know, he, he has for sure the lowest popularity is being elected in 2018. There is definitely a possibility he could go to jail 
And Lula, President, former President Lula's return, very much makes this a two-horse race. The country's Supreme Court ruled that Judge Sergio Moro, who spearheaded the investigations that brought down the former president, was biased against him. And it comes barely two weeks after the court threw out Lula's old corruption convictions, clearing the way for him to run again for office. You know, Lula himself is extraordinarily popular in the country. He's galvanizing the left, which had been a little bit fragmented in, in recent months. Uh, but he also has a very strong rejection rate. You know, there are still people who are, have deep, deep antipathies towards towards the Labour Party. Um, so what we don't have in Brazil right now is a context uh, where you have uh, a large number of moderate candidates. I mean, these candidates are being squeezed out by these two extremes of the left and the right. We've got dark days ahead, and I, I fear that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, we are now entering a third wave in Brazil, uh, and we're just seeing, I think, the tip of the iceberg of the, of the economic uh, consequences. We have another crisis, which we haven't talked about, which is the Amazon uh, basin. And, and we're yes, seeing some yes, of the worst. We've, we've done this on the show before. It's very dire. Yeah. Very, very grim. So we have a dieback scenario. So anyways, I think the, the only way out, I think, right now, frankly, is, is, a, is a new president. Um, a, a new kind of social compact and, and a, a, another government that's going to be addressing this combined challenge of, of COVID, the economy, uh, misinformation, uh, and fundamentally the vulnerabilities that are affecting Brazil. Um, I just don't see this current president doing that. Uh, and, and not to state the obvious here, but uh, Brazil's ability to get COVID under control has very serious ramifications for the rest of the world too, right? Like we know that these dangerous variants uh, come out of places where COVID is rampaging. And there is worry that there could be a, a more vaccine-resistant variant that, that could emerge here. I, I think that's right. It, it's that this is not a problem. That is to say, the response to the, the failure to respond to COVID-19 in Brazil is not a problem just for Brazil. Uh, it's a deep and dark problem for its neighbors, which have already been affected by the P1 variant, which has come out of Brazil, which is more contagious and, and potentially more lethal than other strains. Um, so we're already seeing the spillover effects into neighboring countries across Latin America. We've already seen the spread of P1 as far north as Canada and, and well over uh, towards Western Eastern Europe. Um, and it's, it's, you know, of course, in a, in a place where you don't have um, sufficiently aggressive vaccine interventions and preventive health interventions, you create a perfect accelerant or incubator for the, the creation of new variants uh, on top of the P1 that will be allowed to fester in this population of 210 million people. But one final point, which is that, you know, we know that these zoonotic diseases and others often emerge from areas that have been cleared in forests as humans move further and further in, into the hinterland. Uh, Brazil is experiencing 10-year highs in deforestation right now and penetration into the Amazon, largely as a result of Bolsonaro's effort to lessen environmental penalties and accelerate um, agricultural production and beef production. This is also another context in which diseases can emanate. That is to say, more and more contact with species that are able to transfer these viruses uh, from animal to human. So it's not just the fact that we have a boiling pot of people with the disease, the virus in close contact where you can see mutation, but it's also this relentless pushing into the Amazon to satisfy global markets that I think it also represents a real threat. So don't be surprised if we see more variants coming out of Brazil, uh, you know, in the, in the near future. Oh, okay. Um, Robert, thank you for this. This was um, really, really uh, interesting. Uh, it's been a pleasure to listen to you. 
Thanks for the invitation. government announced that it would donate 55 million COVID-19 vaccine doses to countries in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. It's the remaining portion of the 80 million shots that the Biden administration has promised to send abroad. The goal is to assist countries like Brazil. The announcement comes as more than half of the U.S. population has had at least one dose of a COVID-19 and over 45% are fully vaccinated. All right, that is it for today. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. That is Tuesday morning's edition of FrontBurner from CBC News. You can also catch FrontBurner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. When After 9 returns in a moment here on 93.1 CFIS-FM, we will have yesterday morning's edition of FrontBurner from CBC News. The University of Victoria is conducting a study on assistive technologies, devices used to maintain or improve an individual's ability to function and be independent. If you are an older adult, age 55 plus, using or wanting to use assistive technology, you or a person who assists you can participate. To take part, contact Project Coordinator Dr. Gord Miller by email to kisssat at uvic.ca or colleague Dr. Karen Kabayashi by email to kmkobe at uvic.ca. The world's largest provider of outdoor stays, HipCamp, is celebrating their Canadian launch with a coast-to-coast competition for Canada's best summer job. The successful candidate will spend 40 days adventuring across Canada, camping and glamping at 20 of HipCamp's most beautiful sites. The job is to create blog or vlog content along the way. Full details are available at canadasbestjob.hipcamp.com. Six finalists will be announced on July 19th, so get your entry in today. canadasbestjob.hipcamp.com. Pushing and supporting the nonprofit sector forward is a priority advantage point. Their aim is to work with others in the sector to mutually accomplish goals and create discussions around important topics. These are the values and goals of their membership community. When your organization becomes a Vantage Point member, your board, staff, and volunteers can participate in our advocacy work for the sector. For more information or to become a member of Vantage Point, visit thevantagepoint.ca. If you still need to receive a COVID-19 vaccine but don't have access to a computer to register, you can do so by phone. A provincial call center is available for those needing assistance to book or those who don't have a personal health number. You will need to provide your name, date of birth, postal code, personal health number if you have one, and contact information for you or a support person. The provincial call center number is 1-833-838-2323. That's 1-833-838-2323. 2323. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS FM. And here is yesterday morning's front burner from CBC News. There is a sexual misconduct crisis in the Canadian military. The military knows it. The defense minister knows it. The prime minister knows it. You know it. And yesterday, the military ombudsman, a key guy in charge of trying to get justice for the victims, well, He tried his best to make sure that everyone knows something has to change. The internal mechanisms that were meant to support those who have suffered misconduct have failed to ensure fair outcomes. They are not just broken. They have collapsed entirely under their own weight. 
In a blistering news conference and report, he said that the defense minister's office tried to, quote, exert control over his investigations and that independent civilian oversight is needed now. When leaders turn a blind eye to our recommendations and concerns in order to advance political interests and their own self-preservation or career advancement, it is the members of the defense community that suffer these consequences. It is clear that inaction is rewarded far more than action. Today, Canada's military ombudsman, Gregory Lick, is my guest. Mr. Lick, hello. Thank you so much for making the time to speak with me today. Uh, It's my pleasure, Jamie. So this is, of course, a, a time of immense public and political scrutiny on the military. Over the last four months, we've heard really really devastating stories about rampant sexual misconduct in the institution. And in your opinion, has the response to this from the very top of the military and the very top of the Department of National Defense been adequate? Um, I think in my opinion, and the reason why I was so frustrated this morning during the press conference and during these last four months is that we continue to say we're going to do something. We're going to do another review. We're going to do another review of a review of a review. We're going to look at, as Justice Fish has recommended, we want to recommend a review of of my office and how it can be more independent and and the resources and the authorities it might need to do that. And Madame Deschamps recommended an external body in 2015. We continue to say what we're going to do. We don't do what we say we'll do. And uh-huh, that uh-huh. is inappropriate. It's not serving our members. It's not serving the, the employees of the department very well. It has become a checklist exercise of things we don't do. And when you said today in your press conference that the erratic behavior of leadership defies common sense or reason, is, is that what you were talking about? Or were you talking about something else as well? Well, I think, I think that's definitely part of what I'm talking about in terms of, and probably the most important part. But we also see that, you know, as different allegations come forward, different processes are used. So we see some people getting moved. We see some people stay in place. We see it, it just seems to be inconsistent with, uh, with the way the due process should work. I want to ask you in particular about the leadership of Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan. You also said in your press conference today that the concept of ministerial accountability has been absent. And why do you say that? Well, uh, the, the, the perfect example was with my predecessor when he brought the allegation forward that's been well reported so far. Ministers said, well, I won't look at it. I don't know what it is, but I'll send it off to somebody else to do something about it. Maybe that was appropriate. I don't know. I'm not a military law expert. But what was what didn't happen and the reason why everybody is so frustrated and the trust is breaking is that no action was taken, not even a follow up. Not even a further discussion with my predecessor to say, well, we weren't able to do this or, you know, what else should we, should we do? Nothing happened. It was forgotten about. That is inaction. And it's entirely that is not accountability. Uh, that is and it's not accountability that our members deserve. And just for our listeners, I'll, I'll just note that this uh, allegation that was taken to the minister by the former 
uh, Ombudsman Gary Wilburn that you're talking about. It was an allegation of sexual misconduct against former chief of defense, Jonathan Vance. And essentially, the minister has been well reported. We've talked about it in the show. He said that he didn't he didn't want to look at it. And it sort of got punted to this very Byzantine bureaucratic process and nothing nothing came of it. Um, what impact do you believe this kind of response from leadership is having on victims of sexual misconduct who have come forward? Well, I think um, uh, we're seeing uh, a break in the trust of leadership. Uh, And that's happening at all sorts of levels, but particularly with uh, the the political and senior leadership, too, as well. That that trust is breaking. Action needs to be taken now to fix it. I've proposed a part of that action that needs to happen so that we can help rebuild the trust. But the department has a lot to do. We're hearing as we visit bases, we're hearing in our complaint line that that sense that people are broken in the system. That's, that, that tells me that the system is not working and the trust is broken. Even the acting chief of defense staff, Lieutenant, Lieutenant General Ayer, said the other day, he's seeing cracks in the system. That's telling. Although I know that you mentioned today, you were, you were saying that your office and your predecessors have seen these cracks for, for a very, very long time. That's correct. a little bit more about the effect that you're seeing on your work and your office's work. So so just to be clear here, you report to the Minister of Defense's office. And as so many people are calling for these big systemic changes in the military in response to the sexual misconduct crisis, do you feel that you have been free and empowered to work towards those changes as the military ombudsman? Well, I, the reason why I called a press conference was to bring to light a solution, or at least part of a solution that will help rebuild that trust for people that are suffering on both sides of the equation, as I said. Uh, The reports on governance in the past have been largely ignored. And so, you know, if they're going to be ignored, what's the point of bringing forward another one? This is a report, this is a a paper, it's my position paper to Canadians about what is needed. And they are not recommendations. These are must-haves for an independent civilian oversight mechanism to work. And and I want to flesh that out with you in, in just one more minute about what you're proposing here. But just for, for our listen, listeners, I wonder if you could explain how has your work been hindered? Well, certainly there's the, the small, insidious type of administrative issues that affect our office all the time. And I, I reported on one in the, in the position paper itself. just happened last week for individuals within public affairs and within the personal research agency uh, came back to us and said, no, you have to have your your, uh, investigation questions approved by the department. That is entirely inappropriate and interference in our operation. Hmm. Those people were educated, though, about that. This happens all the time. We educate them. That's our role, too, as well. And, And that has been corrected. But we continually have to push back on that. And in fact, uh, I sent a letter to the deputy minister and the acting chief of defense staff to ask for their support, report it and ask for their support and making sure that people are more aware of what our mandate is. Has Minister Harjit Sajjan interfered with your work as ombudsman? Has he tried to exert any control over your work? Uh, I haven't seen, in essence, the direct 
uh, interference that Mr. Walburn saw when he brought the allegation forward, that lack of, uh, basically lack of action and basically not doing anything. But what I've seen, though, and while it's not, I wouldn't call it direct political interference in what normally people think about, but that lack of action. So I gave a report, a systemic investigation report to the minister that I'm responsible to do back in December. I didn't get a response that they even received it until earlier this June. That's entirely inappropriate. In fact, the the response didn't even have an action plan whether the recommendations were were accepted. This is what we're going to do. Not even that. Hmm. That's inappropriate. That's lack of accountability. And for me, that that inaction is just as bad as direct political interference. Okay. Your report describes a risk of retaliation for performing your oversight function in this current system, that there have been subtle and insidious instances that suggest a pattern of reprisal. And and why would your office be subject to reprisal? Well, the, the why is quite simple, because we bring uh, generally negative issues forward that have a large negative impact on our constituents. And in fact, on the reputation of the institution. But that's my role. That is my job, and I take it very, very seriously. It is stunning to me that you would face reprisal for just doing your job. And I can imagine that it undermines trust in your independence and, and your ability to do to do your job. Yeah, and that's exactly why we, uh, we want to take away even the ability to do that. Uh, the reason, one of the main reasons for asking for that uh, reporting parliament is to ensure that all of parliament, not an individual party that has a vested interest or an individual person who has, may have an vested interest in the narrative around their department, um, that they, that all Canadians represented by parliament hear what we've got to say and then action is taken. Mm-hmm. And, and just to be clear, this is that must-have that you were talking about earlier, right? Um, you're, you're calling for far more independence for your office. You want your office to report to Parliament, not the Department of Defense. Yes. That is part one of yesterday morning's front burner from CBC News. Part two coming up in a moment here on 93.1 CFIS FM's After Nine. The Indigenous Sport, Physical Activity and Recreation Council is looking for skilled volunteers to join their regional action teams. These teams will build and develop sport, physical activities and recreation opportunities. Qualified applicants are invited to complete an application to be considered by iSpark Selection Committee. To apply or for full details, visit iSpark.ca. The Indigenous Sport, Physical Activity and Recreation Council's Regional Action Teams Call for Volunteers. Application deadline is 5 p.m. Wednesday, July 7th. The College New Caledonia has launched the roadmap for its future with the release of its 2021 to 2026 strategic plan, Learning Together. It was achieved through a year of engagement, including hundreds of contributions, dozens of meetings, and open forums across the region. At the core of its plan, CNC's new vision, Learning Together, Changing Lives, Creating Futures. The full plan is available online at cnc.bc.ca. Life Sciences BC invites you to the McCarthy Spotlight Speaking Series, How Digital Health is Transforming Healthcare. 
Learn how innovation is facilitating a transformation of healthcare delivery with better health outcomes by integrating healthcare systems, eliminating geographical barriers, and providing advancements in artificial intelligence and precision medicine. Life Sciences BC's McCarthy Spotlight Series: How Digital Health is Transforming Healthcare this afternoon from 4 to 5:30. Registration is free through lifesciencesbc.ca forecast from Environment Canada. Cloudy today, winds in the west at 20 this afternoon, a high of 24 with a high UV index. Clearing tonight with a low of 12. For Friday, sunny, wind from the west at 20 in the afternoon, a high of 30 with a very high UV index. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And here is part two of yesterday morning's front burner from CBC News. Just coming back to Minister... Sajjan for for a moment. Do do you think he's capable of fulfilling his role as defense minister responsibly, given the complaints of not one, but now two ombudsmen? Frankly, do you think that he needs to go? Well, that that question is really for the prime minister. Um, My personal opinion does not matter in that regard. That is a prime ministerial decision, but it's also a decision for Canadians in an election period. Um, what I can tell you, though, is what we're hearing is that trust in leadership is breaking. In fact, it's showing huge, I use the word chasms in my speech, huge cracks. Um, and that, le- that trust has to be rebuilt at the political and at the leadership level across the organization. Unless, if we don't do that, failure is only going to continue. What about the prime minister who has stood by him through all of this? What, what does that say to you? Well, I mean, again, that's a question for the prime minister. I I can't say one way or the other what his view on it is. I don't know what his personal view is on, is on it other than what he said publicly. But ultimately, ministers need to be accountable for the action or inactions of their department. Are you disappointed by the prime minister's response to this? Uh, am I disappointed? I'm disappointed in the lack of action. I'm disappointed in the lack of action in terms of uh, dealing with sexual misconduct and other abuses of authority within the department. Uh, And this is not not just within this department. This is likely within other departments as well. But the institution of the Canadian Armed Forces, because of the hierarchy and the command and control structure that they have, they need to be better served. There needs Uh to be a change in the culture. And they deserve better than no action at all. Not another review. No more studies. Stop doing reviews. Take action because people are suffering now. Uh, you know, we talked about you needing more independence in your role. What else do you think needs to happen? Well, I think the, there's the other elements. So we've asked for legislation to give us permanence and ensure we have the authority, proper authorities for our organization to be independent, uh, have less control by, by departments, in this case, the, the Department of National Defense over our operation. Uh, but the two main points in terms of authorities that we think are must-haves in terms of doing our job, the ability to escalate it beyond the minister mm-hmm. to the prime minister if necessary. Certainly not every complaint that we get, that would, be, that would not be appropriate. We want to solve them at the lowest level if possible. And ultimately, if the prime minister is not responding, then to parliament. So that ability to escalate it beyond the minister will make ministerial accountability work, I believe. The other element, though, is in, is in mandating a response to our investigations, whether they are systemic investigation reports or whether they're individual 
complaint investigations. Having a mandated response time set by our organization, probably negotiated with the department, depending on what the particular issue is, that would avoid the, the long delays that we re, that we see uh, in many, many uh, complaints that we receive. And certainly I'm seeing now in getting a response on our systemic investigation of last December. this talk for the need for for a culture change in the military and you know I'd, I'd like to get your perspective on this because we've now seen Jonathan Vance former chief of defense accused of sexual misconduct then his successor Art McDonald stepped down because he was accused of sexual misconduct then the gun charge of handling personnel complaints including allegations of sexual misconduct leaves because he's in- accused of sexual misconduct the second in command of the armed forces recently left after he along with the head of the navy went golfing with Vance, who is under military police investigation. So even if you do get all of this independence and you're able to sort of escalate complaints in the way that you would like to, Mm -hmm. do you think this organization is actually willing to change, let alone able? Well, I'm an optimist. Um, I believe they want to change. Um, and I will continue that belief until until I'm proved wrong. But the if the institution of the Canadian Armed Forces in particular does not have the will to change, then we have failed. And in fact, if they don't, the institution in it will fail. And that is not a good thing. We will have failed military members. We will have failed their families. And that will guarantee failures in the future. So I, I believe, and I, I believe personally, that they want to change. But we know that culture change in an institution the size of the armed forces is a long-term effort. Um, it's going to take a, quite a bit of effort. It has to start at every level of leadership in terms of courageous people, courageous leaders taking action when necessary, standing up for those that are hurt, standing up for victims, and making sure people are treated fairly. Everyone deserves to be treated fairly, whether they're even whether they're a perpetrator, an alleged perpetrator, or a victim, they still in Canada require and deserve due process. If I could ask you, Mr. Lick, when, when you say they want to change, who, who do you mean by they? Because I do think that people will listen to that and they will still feel like there are just kinds of question marks around the top, around the leadership. Right. Like, do they actually want to change? And again, I'll just repeat this one more time. The second in command of the armed forces uh, and the head of the Navy recently went golfing with General Vance, who is under military police investigation for sexual misconduct. Yeah. And I again, I, I reiterate, I have to believe that they want to change until I'm proven wrong. Um that, that's that's the only way that I think we can all move forward. As I said, that culture change will take a long time. Um, but I truly believe they want to change, and I will do everything I can in my role to make sure that they're aware of what needs to change. I make recommendations to, to them to make sure that they understand what we believe needs to change. I will continue in that role until I retire. Okay. Uh, Mr. Lick, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome, Jamie. Thank you very much.
Minister Harjit Sajjan responded to Gregory Lick's report in a statement on Tuesday. He said that there hasn't been political interference with the Ombudsman's office and that, quote, I expect he would have alerted me if he felt there was a problem with the relations between our offices. That never happened, unquote. Sajjan also said that he's committed to creating an independent and external reporting system that meets the needs of survivors of sexual misconduct in the military. We have requested the defense minister several times for an interview on the show. We will keep trying. That's it for today, though. Thanks again for listening to FrontBurner, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. On 93.1 CFIS-FM, that is yesterday morning's FrontBurner from CBC News. You can also catch uh, FrontBurner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. On today's FrontBurner, their topic is Inside the Die Hard Camp at Ferry Creek, and that'll be broadcast tonight at about 11. In a moment, we'll return to wrap up today's edition of After Nine. The Prince George Public Library is conducting a strategic planning survey. Take a few minutes to give your input and help your public library develop a strategic plan and vision for the next three to five years. It's a place for everyone, and they need your feedback and ideas. Access the survey through your library's homepage at pgpl.ca. The Prince George Public Library Strategic Planning Survey, a library for everyone. Respond today through pgpl.ca. Organizations in the social service sectors can now request personal protective equipment from the Government of Canada's Essential Services Contingency Reserve. The reserve provides eligible businesses and organizations with supplies to address urgent short-term needs and protect frontline workers. Organizations who provide services-based social programs in support of personal, social, and emotional well-being are eligible. For more information or to register your organization, search for Essential Services Contingency Reserve at Canada.ca. Employers are now able to apply online to the B.C. government's COVID-19 paid sick leave reimbursement program. Through this program, employers can reimburse for up to three days of wages paid to workers for COVID-19-related sick leave. To apply, you must be signed up to the WorkSafe BC online services and not have an existing paid sick leave program. Full details are available at WorkSafeBC.com. More information about the program is available on the BC government COVID-19 paid sick leave reimbursement program webpage. Canada is one of the most connected countries in the world. With more of our daily activities occurring online, we increasingly have to create and remember new passwords. In order to prevent fraud and data breaches, be sure to create strong passwords. Use a minimum of eight characters, including upper and lowercase letters, and at least one number and a symbol. Create unique passwords for every online account. For more information, visit getcybersafe.gc.ca. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And we have a uh, well, substantial amount of time to fill here at the end of the show. Uh, on your Thursday morning, I guess, first off, we want to start with the COVID numbers and uh, pretty good numbers, I think, uh, yesterday, even across the province. 87. 87 new. New. Uh, new uh, cases, uh, and they're get, uh, province-wide, we're getting close to a, th- a thousand, we're getting down to about a thousand, and uh, you know uh, the next uh, next Thursday, I guess, is the next announcement. So, if we get below a thousand, I think that, that'll, that'll bode well for uh, you know getting rid of some of the protocols that are out there. Well, we'll see. 
Yeah. Uh, locally, the number, uh, the the really encouraging number was zero. Zero. No new active cases across the north. Uh, our total is down to, what, 52 now, mm-hmm. I think, active cases. The scary part of that, I, I thought, is that uh, there's a substantial number that are in hospital and uh, quite a few in critical care. So that's, that's where the problem is. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I think the uh, I don't know if, if that's an indication that the the virus and its uh, variations are, are more uh, serious well, now the, than they I had think been. The new variant is taking a little little more hold. Yeah, it's it, and I think uh, the, what did they have it at twenty percent? Oh, I, I don't know. I haven't seen any uh, specific numbers on the on the variant. But yeah, six currently hospitalized and five in critical care. So actually, the numbers aren't quite right because that really means there's 11 currently hospitalized, mm-hmm. right? It's five in critical care and six others in hospital. Uh, I noticed that the other day when the the number in critical care was higher than the number in hospital, and then and I realized, oh, I guess that means... There's, you know, the critical care plus plus the others in hospital, because correct me if I'm wrong, those in critical care would be in hospital, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, 52 active cases across the north, zero uh, total new cases yesterday, uh, which is great when we're just a week away from Canada Day and Canada Day celebrations. Imagine most people will be just heading out to the lakes or whatever. Uh, Hubble Homestead does have some things that you can do all of next week in celebration of what they, uh, they, they call it Dominion Day as it, as it once was known. Um, I don't know if they'll ever change that, but, uh, that's kind of a, an interesting topic in its, in and of itself in with, itself, yeah. with all the residential school, uh, discussion going on. But being a historic site, I think you kind of have to, um, you have to stick to that aspect, I guess, mm-hmm. right? It was called Dominion Day. Whether or not you like what happened back then, that's kind of what you have to represent is, is what that heritage is, right? Anyway, uh, other things going on. Two Rivers Gallery has a new director of public programs. And congratulations to Derek Chang. They did a, uh, they, they, they did a search across Canada to find this uh, this applicant, and I believe he was last in Grand Prairie. Oh, so he came from Grand Prairie. Yeah. So uh, that's good on them. Of course, the uh, gallery very busy with other things, including uh, they have uh, a couple of displays that I believe are coming to an end next week. So if you want to take in either of those two... Uh, one is about, uh, well, one is, is all about water. Mm-hmm. And I thought I had the printout for the other one, but it's buried in my stack of papers here. <laughs> I thought it was the next one, so I, I, my mistake. Anyway, uh, and they are still, I believe, only open Monday through Saturday from 10 to 5 or 11 to 5. Yeah. Yeah, still not open on Sundays. <clears throat> that might change. Uh, you know, next month with with easing of restrictions, but we'll see what happens. They still have uh, the free Thursdays, 
you can go down free on Thursdays and they're open till nine on Thursdays. So oh, okay. that's probably the, uh, the best time to pop in and, and check it out. And it's nice uh, environment control down there too. So, you know, if you're sweating it out at home because the AC is not working, uh, maybe take a trip down to the, <laughs> to the art gallery. They, they have to have it, uh, the, the, environment control in Controlled there because for the paintings etc mm-hmm. you don't want to damage the artwork okay so that's uh on the go what else is going on these days oh there is a survey underway for the uh, prince george public library they're uh planning ahead for the next three to five years and they want public input i actually took the survey and i realized i hadn't been to the library in probably a couple of years um, but with the situation at home, I don't have access to any kind of, um, entertainment, home entertainment right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking I'll, I'll go back to the library. They, they have a, a whole bunch of DVDs, oh, tons lots. of, tons of movies I've never seen before. Absolutely. So I think I'll start, uh, borrowing some DVDs and, and catch up on some, some movies that I've never watched. Anyway, uh, the you library. You catch up on movies? Hmm? You're the movie buff. I am, but there's still tons that I haven't seen. So, <laughs> Anyway, the uh, Prince George Public Library Strategic Planning Survey available through their website, uh, pgpl.ca, I believe, is, is their website. So you can go on and, and uh, take that in. Uh, no news yet on the Climb for Cancer. Climb for Cancer, it is going to go ahead this year. That's the but, cut banks? Yeah, the, okay. the cut banks. Uh, but I think they're just waiting probably after the, the first, once the new, then they'll, they'll sort of solidify a date. I would think they'll probably look at maybe September. Uh, the idea being you don't want to put the event on when everyone's off at the lake and, well, and course, not, yeah. right? You want to have it. But who knows? Uh, last year they did a week long thing where you could book a time to, to climb the cut banks. So that's another option they could still go to this year if they wanted to keep that social distancing aspect. So, uh, stay tuned on that one. Uh, Spruce Kings, they have their season tickets available. Actually, both the Spruce Kings and the Cougars, the, the WHL schedule got released last week. So that's available uh, if you're planning ahead for next hockey season, which, you know, we're coming to the end of the NHL playoffs. So, Well, the Spruce King uh, package is really affordable. Oh, yeah, it is. It's and amazing. it's a great, uh, a great way to take in some live hockey if you've got a family, uh, a couple of kids, three or four kids. Uh, it's not, not going to break the bank for you, right? No. So that's uh, a good option and entertaining. And, oh yeah, yeah. No, they have they play a pretty pretty good um, brand of hockey in the BCHL. SpruceKings.bc.ca is the website that you can find out about that. Plus their uh, summer hockey school coming up in, in the last two weeks of August. And oh, and the AGM I think is next week. I think it's pretty close. Yeah, it's coming up pretty quick, and you'd want to um, make sure you have a membership if you want to get involved with them as far as being, um, you know, part of that AGM and voting and all that sort of stuff. 
Oh, here it is. I found the uh, printout about the exhibits on at Two Rivers Gallery. One is called All for Water, which features a lot of uh, northern BC artists, and it's all about water, water. right? Uh, the other one is An Exercise in Listening, and that one has artwork from uh, across Canada. That would be interesting. Yeah. Artwork well, and listening. Yeah, it's it's a wide variety of items in that. Um, uh, the one that they have on the the little printout here is a, kind of a cool. It's sort of a a painting of a mountain, but it's done in in sort of a well, not abstract, but it's it's a uni- unique way that they've done it. That distorted kind of no, no 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 no. It's not distorted. It's just uh, fragmented. I guess you you okay. call it. It looks pretty cool. Um, anyway, uh, neat thing about Two Rivers Gallery, uh, I think this started up or really started to take uh, hold during the pandemic, is they have they now have a YouTube channel that they uh, constantly post video uh, videos from the artists to talk about their work and explain a little bit about the process and that sort of thing. So if, if you want to uh, sort of have a... A heads up about what you're going to be looking at when you go to the gallery. Go on to YouTube and type in Two Rivers Gallery, find their channel. There will be all kinds of presentations about wow. the different uh, artwork that's on. Yeah, uh, so that's kind of a cool aspect that's sort of uh, come to the light, I guess you could say, over the last year or so and become a very important part of Two Rivers Gallery. Awesome. So that'll wrap it for today's edition of After 9. Tomorrow we will have the uh, Ram and Stag podcast as usual, followed by the Friday panel. After 9 is a daily presentation of CFIS-FM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Reg Fair, and Nathan Gita. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. Owned and operated by the Prince George Community Radio Society, you're listening to CFIS FM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with 500 watts of power at 